we're back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Hawaii's tourism has been slow to rebound following the rollout of the Japan travel bubble and the pre-test safe travels program in order to avoid the 14-day quarantine. Many hotels have announced plans to welcome guests back, but some not until next month. We talked to Chris Cam of the OmniTrack Group, which regularly surveys travelers to Hawaii. So just how confident are people to get on a plane amidst the spiking numbers of COVID-19 across the country? We hear about the October snapshot. We field a survey of basically about 9,500 people that traveled, uh, U.S. US, uh, residents who traveled at least once in the past 12 months. And so what did you ask them? Well, we asked them, uh, basically, you know, we asked them for their future travel intentions. We asked them how they're thinking about travel. And I think the, the overarching picture that we see that came out of the survey is that uh, people are basically in this wait-and-see mode. They're kind of in a holding pattern when it comes to future travel. But at the end of the day, travel is resilient, and uh, we do we are confident that uh, travel will start to show signs of life, uh, most likely starting in 2021 and probably most likely in the second quarter and beyond. I mean, what we have seen is that um, about a third of travelers who've traveled in the past year do have uh, do have travel plans for the next six months. But that is rather low compared to where they were in the early days of COVID when 50% of people actually had travel plans. So uh, there was forward, actually so there was actually maybe more confidence or at least more hope that they were going to be traveling? It, yeah, we were in, uh, in the early days of COVID. I think people were kind of in a denial stage. They said, yes, we know COVID's out there. This would have been back in early March. Uh, but COVID was going to be a thing that was, you know, offshore and, and primarily in Asia un- until it wasn't. Then it came to the U.S. and then they had to face reality. And that's what they're dealing with now. Uh, about, a, you know, and that's why we have about a third of the people do have solid travel plans for the next six months. Um, oh. We're thinking that uh, the, the rise in COVID cases across the U.S., the political uncertainty, the complexity of a travel experience these days, um, not knowing everything that's involved with it. We see that uh, as dampening travel demand. But uh, at the same time, we're seeing our, our, our measurements of travel confidence have just inched up in October relative to where they were in September. I think it's not a big jump, but we saw a, a slight increase in the number the percentage of people saying they were more interested in traveling now than they were uh, a month ago. I'm oh, sorry, more than uh, now than they were a year ago. And we also see that the uh, percentage of people saying that travel is less safe now than a year compared to a year ago. That uh, that percentage has gone down uh, just ever so slightly. So, increasing interest, decreasing concerns about uh, safety. Once again, those are just really small changes in the marketplace. You'd like to get a better sense of where we're headed, and uh, right now it's just kind of in a wait-and-see mode. I think one, another insight that our tracking research provides is that you know there's a lot of talk about a vaccine and the impact of a vaccine on travel demand. We see that as definitely helping to increase travel demand as we get closer to having a vaccine, but we do realize that when, when a vaccine comes to market and is readily available, our survey is indicating that only about 25% of uh, people that have, who have traveled in the past year are going to take uh, get the vaccine as soon as it's uh, ready, readily available. This compares with about 57% that are either going to, they say they'll either get it eventually or they're going to wait and see what happens to it. So really at the heart of this is consumer confidence. This is also tied into the lift capacity, right? What airlines are, are traveling and, and what routes are available. Definitely. The, uh, the outlook for our air seat capacity is going to play a huge role in uh, the, the future of, of how tourism performs out here in Hawaii, as well as, you know, how uh, travel confidence performs. The, the CDC has uh, given the green light to the return of cruises in the U.S. market. 
However, before the cruise lines can actually start operating cruises, they have to get procedures and protocols, safety protocols, all approved by CDC, and they also have to have uh, demonstration or test cruises for each specific ship before that happens. So the things I'm seeing in the travel trade predict more of a February 2021 return than a January 2021 return of the cruise industry. And, and what are your thoughts? Because you've been involved in different aspects of, of uh, the visitor industry just about our recovery, you know, because folks are saying, well, we don't know if it's going to be a, a V. It may be a U. <laughs> so <laughs> slow in coming. Yeah, I think it'll be a gradual recovery um, in general and, and, and in Hawaii. The challenge we have in Hawaii is that we do not have a drive market to uh, really tap into, unlike a lot of the destinations that we work with uh, across the mainland. But at the end of the day, I think the travel is resilient. I know, we, uh, you know, according to our surveys, people are really looking forward to travel once again, to uh, take a break and get away from everything, get some rest and relaxation, and to reconnect with friends and relatives. And that's a very strong driver of uh, travel demand. That will fuel the rebound in travel. It may not it, the the pace of the recovery will vary by destination, but it will recover. Coming off this record year of 10 million visitors, how do we do a better job of making the experience better for everybody? Oh yeah, I mean, how do we engage the, with the visitors more to make uh, to give them a deeper experience of, of Hawaii? Granted, people are just really looking for escape right now. If they can escape, and uh, but we don't want them to just come and and drop on the beach, but we do want them to come and engage with all that Hawaii has to offer, the culture of Hawaii, the taste and the sights and the sounds of Hawaii. Uh, that, that's what really gives, provides visitors with a deep experience, which they fall in love with, and they keep coming back to our islands to experience again and again. Yep, we will be uh, where we are in the field with the uh, surveying travelers during the month of November and then December. Yeah, so this is a syndicated survey that we do for destinations across the U.S. We measure visitation by state and by city for all travelers, all U.S. travelers. Basically, what the Hawaii Tourism does, uh, the Hawaii Tourism Authority, how the Hawaii Tourism Authority measures visitor arrivals and spending to Hawaii. We do that for the country as a whole and for every single state and uh, major city in the country. That was Chris Cam of the OmniTrack Group, which regularly surveys visitors to get a sense of their confidence and their travel plans. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, owners and managers of office, industrial, and retail properties across the state. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii for 150 years with a commitment to provide for the needs of island communities. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that make us a part of their communication strategy. Mahalo to the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Waimea Valley, and the Shidler College of Business at UH Manoa. They believe, just as you do in the power of public radio, see a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're reviewing a movie that took advantage of Hawaii's tropical location to tell one of the heroic stories of the Second World War. 
The pilot revolved around an ingenious plan of the Pacific High Command to keep its coded messages secret from the Japanese. The surprise solution was the recruitment and training of Signal Corps personnel from Native American tribes, mostly Navajo. They learned how to paraphrase details as map coordinates and technical information about weaponry in their own language. This proved to be an unbreakable code throughout the war, and this Made in Hawaii movie celebrated their achievement. The film starred Nicolas Cage and was released almost two decades ago in 2002. For today's quiz, we want you to name the film and the director. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Pacific Islanders in Hawaii continue to see disproportionate impacts of COVID-19. They make up nearly 30% of the state's coronavirus cases, but only 4% of its population. For the thousands of Pacific Islanders who don't speak English, access to health care under the pandemic has been largely dependent on access to a language interpreter. HBR's Ku'uvehira Ishii joins us this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Pacific Islanders, and I think everyone in Hawaii noticed early on in the pandemic that there was little information on COVID-19 that could be found in, in Pacific Islander languages. Uh, and state and county health agencies were, were able to scramble to find translators for some of the material uh, that we'd see on social media or posted on uh, the Department of Health's website. But finding medical interpreters, right, folks fluent in the language, steeped in the culture, but also familiar with the medical terminology was a, a whole other challenge. Uh, the state Office of Language Access says Chukis in particular uh, has been the most recent uh, or most requested language for, for translation and interpretation services under the pandemic uh, with the agency. Uh, so this They've got a roster of qualified Chukis interpreters that may not necessarily have gone through any uh, formal medical training, um, but uh, there is an even smaller uh, pool of those medical interpreters. Well, I know that so, uh, usually uh, oh, you hear of interpreters, let's say, in, in court, right, when people get right. uh, arrested and have traffic uh, violations, but the, exactly. the hospitals are a whole other issue. They are, and I think for uh, from the folks that I've spoken to for a really long time, it's sort of been, oh, hey, you, <laughs> a nurse or, or someone who's working at the, uh, at the front desk, are you, you know, do you speak this language? Can you help me interpret for, <laughs> for this patient who just walked in and, you know, we realized uh, does not speak English? Uh, so this, this, I think this, this issue really was highlighted under the pandemic. Uh, so speaking to uh, Filio Suruman, he is a Chukis language, medical language interpreter, who's been very busy under the pandemic. Um, but he, like many uh, in the Chukis community, he began interpreting when he was uh, 11 years old, right, for his Chukis-speaking parents when the family moved uh, to Hawaii. So he got to see firsthand how crucial, uh, even in elementary school, how crucial a role uh, language interpretation or language interpreters specifically play in helping his community navigate English-speaking Hawaii. Uh, so for him, uh, when it came uh, to COVID-19, he really noticed that ensuring uh, Chukis families that he worked with, that they understood words like isolation and, and quarantine and exactly what that entails and, and to make sure that they would stick with it, uh, that that could be the difference, you know, in, in COVID-19 spreading in the community or in that household uh, or stopping it. So here's Uruman. The number one problem that I see in many places, when people come in, hi, what's your name? My name is so-and-so. Oh, how are you? I'm good. Oh, he speaks English. English is his first language. He does not need interpreter. No, those people need an interpreter. It's not okay. It's not safe 
to assume that someone speaks English. Very powerful words uh, when I had uh, spoken to him, but language access, uh, as we know, is a right uh, here in Hawaii under state and also under federal law. So non-English speaking residents have that right to demand a language interpreter. It's not uh, often done, especially in sort of chaotic hospital environments. Uh, but uh, like we mentioned earlier, prior to the pandemic, a lot of it was in the hospital setting at least, was somewhat informal, an informal arrangement, right? You look like you may speak it. Can you come and help me get this patient through the process? And this really uh, irks uh, linguist Suzanne Zung, a retired professor up at UH, uh, UH Manoa's Center for Interpretation and Translation Studies. So she's now the president of Language Services Hawaii, so they, uh, she connects service providers of interpretation and translation uh, here in uh, Hawaii with state agencies, hospitals, uh, anyone who really needs the service. And for her, uh, the training component is crucial uh, to really um, staving off COVID-19. Here's Zung. So what happens is the non-trained interpreters fake it. Whereas a trained interpreter would say, excuse me, doctor, uh, the interpreter would like to check a dictionary, you know, and I can just check my dictionary. Or if they say, you know, you need some surgery I've never heard of, I would say, excuse me, doctor, the interpreter is unfamiliar with that term. Could you explain it, please? Because I want to be accurate. So trained interpreters know what to do when they don't understand. And non-trained interpreters tend to fake it, including sons or daughters or, you know, family members. Interesting. Zeng, you know, she really sees the, the pandemic as an opportunity to ramp up training of Pacific Islander language speakers and medical interpretation. Uh, she and uh, retired public health nurse Barbara Tom, uh, 10 years ago or so, spearheaded a training program particularly to do that, uh, to train, I think they trained 15 medical interpreters in Chukis and Marshallese. They started a, a glossary of medical terminology because, as we know, um, there, you know, for many terms, including COVID-19, uh, there is no uh, true keys or Marshallese words. So coming up with descriptions for that to be used in medical interpretation was part of that program. And they lost funding, um, but she's hopeful that um, perhaps because of the pandemic and national attention uh, to Pacific Islanders uh, uh, being hit disproportionately by COVID across the country, that uh, the exam they had um, that their design might be of, of use. Here's uh, Zhang. The national organization is very interested in that exam. And they're already recorded, already ready to go. And they're very similar to the National uh, Certification of Medical Interpreters um, Association exams. Uh, hopefully the next step is to get the evaluation together and then just let them have it. Oh, hopefully good news for, for our non-English-speaking uh, Pacific Islander community here, uh, but for, for all languages really and highlighting the need for language access, uh, specifically in the medical world. Yeah, so you mentioned that they lost funding for that training program. So, you know, they talk about how there's federal monies that we've got to spend, so additional monies will be put in this area then? Uh, we, it depends on the state agency. There hasn't been, there's been some influx, I think, at the city and county of Honolulu for uh, use of uh, CARES Act funds for that. Uh, but it is, you know, it's it's like $400 for the exam um, to get certified, another $100 for the written exam. Then you've got to recertify for five years for another uh, $300 for Zhang. She says, you know, it's kind of discouraging for in the Pacific Islander community, so perhaps even uh, an additional influx of funds to really invest in a cadre of Pacific Islander interpreters uh, would need a lot of money. All right. Well, uh, it's a, a good thing that you're uh, highlighting this, a very important issue to our community here. Thanks so much, Kuvehi. Thanks. That was Kuvehi Reishi. She was talking with us today about the need for Pacific Island language interpreters during this pandemic. You can her read her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The new exhibition, Okalani, features works by Native Hawaiian artists Sean K. L. Brown and Imai Kalani Kalahele through January 3rd. HonoluluMuseum.org. I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we'll talk about a recent virtual conference organized by the University of Hawaii's Office of Research and Innovation. We'll find out how the university can be an engine for economic diversification, especially in the area of digital innovation. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. You may recall it was back in June that the city first reported that a bus driver tested positive for COVID-19. Since that time, others have come down with the virus. We get an update on today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Marcel Henri on the line today. Good morning, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. So what's the number up to now? Well, you've got uh, 21 total reported COVID-19 positives among drivers of the bus and the handyman. That includes 18 bus drivers and three handyman drivers. There's also uh, two drivers that I'm told are awaiting results kind of in the queue at the so do they have a handle on where these drivers may have contracted uh, the virus? Yeah, so it's, it seems to be a variety of, of uh, different ways. And I guess the good news is that in the vast majority, they've determined that these are circumstances outside of work. This could be where they had family members uh, who came down with the virus and then they subsequently tested positive. Um, other circumstances of community spread and even some drivers uh, who are out traveling, you know, off, off island. Um, that is, the, again, the, the majority, but there were three cases in which they couldn't find circumstances outside of work. And in those three particular cases, I'm told that the workers did file, uh, or I'm sorry, that the drivers filed a, a workers' comp claim. Oh, that's interesting. So then... Uh... Uh, how are they going to handle that? Yeah, it, it remains to be seen. I mean, they could, uh, uh, you know, take sick leave, and, and apparently Oahu Transit Services, which is the, you know, the, the semi-autonomous company that runs uh, the bus and the handyvan uh, for the city, they're saying that they're, they're being very flexible in terms of how people can use their sick leave and their, their personal uh, time off, you know, to, to string those together. Uh, so and, and that they really are encouraging people, uh, you know, maybe in ways they didn't do prior to the pandemic to really stay home if they feel even you know, a, a touch sick. So they could take sick, sick leave conceivably. Um, but, yeah, I guess they'll just go through the normal process with with HR on these, these workers. Comp yeah. And I, I know even like the hospitals are, are uh, facing the situation, you know, if they're health care officials, health care workers, rather, uh, contract the disease is it you know from the workplace uh, did they not have you know enough ppe or yeah it's, it's going to be a, a little sticky situation trying to work that out right i mean you're talking about essential workers uh performing you know kind of a vital service in terms of, of public transit and you really want to uh keep both the drivers and the, the workers and the, and the i'm sorry and the passengers you know safe uh in, in this situation what they've been doing is, um, in, in a few of these cases, where the drivers were found to, to have been, you know, maybe there was some overlap, frankly, uh, even with the protective measures on the bus, uh, some overlap in when they, they were starting to come down with their symptoms. They have been issuing um, the, the routes that they had driven and the number of routes that they release and how far they go back, apparently based on kind of the, the CDC recommendations at the time. They were following very closely, you know, how really, um, you know, it's a balancing act uh, where where OTS needs to kind of try and balance uh, their, their uh, driver's privacy, but also, you know, and their, their um, you know, uh, uh, confidentiality as far as their health uh, concerns, but also giving the public the, um, the information that they need to know. Yeah, and the city has been um, 
you know, really trying to make an effort to be transparent. So, uh, you know, that's a good thing. Now, the city's also, uh, or I should say OTS, has been trying to do more sanitation, right, on the on the bus as well. So they've been doing uh, daily cleanings on this bus that go above on the on all of the buses, I should say, that that go above and beyond what they were doing prior to the pandemic. Uh, you know, daily uh, wiping down of the interior and what's called hydrostatic cleaning. Uh, this, I understand, they've spent about five hundred thousand um, uh, dollars in overtime uh, for uh, you know for their, their uh, maintenance crews to do this. So yeah, it's been. It's been some, some extra work there. Well, I'm sure the uh, bus ridership is also down because people are a little leery of, about getting the disease. Yeah, so uh, bus bus ridership is actually still down by more than half compared to the pre-pandemic. Uh, you're looking at about 82,000 daily trips on the bus. Uh, usually it's about 20,000, or I'm sorry, 200,000. And it's, it's rebounded a little bit. Right when the, the pandemic hit, it was as, down as far as around 65,000. So it has rebounded a little bit, but it's maintained steady at about 82,000 uh, daily trips. And what OTS is reporting is about a $25 million uh, annual loss in fares in, in all of those yeah, trips. That's, that's quite a hit. No, we've got to keep our fingers crossed that that goes back up. But thank you, Marcel. Good story. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Honore with today's reality check. To read his stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. This morning on The Long View, our political analyst, Neil Milner, takes a closer look at the general election results, in particular the breakdown for the parties. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, we were hearing a lot about the, the blue wall and the red wall. How well, yeah, there's a lot we don't know yet, but we know a fair amount by, uh, of how the, we know a lot about how vote was county by county, and that tells us a whole lot. And some of the important things that it tells us is that the urban, suburban, rural divide is even bigger. That there is that um, the uh, in in the Clinton election in 2016, there was it was already clear that small towns and uh, urban and rural areas went even more Republican than they had in the past, and other places got even maybe slightly more Democratic. Um, what you have in this election is that of all the kinds of categories, big cities, urban cores, suburbs, and so on, the only area that went more Republican in 2020 for presidency than the, than the last one was rural. So you have that kind of difference that has increased. Suburbs actually drove the election a little bit more, and we'll get back to that in a second, because that has something to do with diversity and, and prosperity. So that's that's one thing that we know. The other thing we know, and it's of course related to the urban and rural thing, the the, the counties that went for Biden uh, produced 70 percent of the gross domestic product in the country. In other words, over two-thirds of the stuff produced, domestic product, is produced in those places, and it's not hard to imagine what they are. And that's an increase over last time. So now there's even a bigger difference between, let's say, prosperity in the urban areas. And almost every city that, uh, that is a high producer is now a Democratic city or was this time, including a city like Phoenix, which used to be pretty Republican. So you put those two things together and you see that there is something here about very big differences in prosperity, very big differences in um, in urban versus rural. And there's one more thing to put into this mix, and that is that suburbs became more democratic this time uh, and may have been a very important factor. But it's a certain kind of suburb that, in fact, is a lot more like these high-producing 
uh, uh, gross domestic product places. Uh, one of them is a suburb of Atlanta, for example, that used to be kind of rural or small town, 65% white, is now very diverse, uh, only about 30-some percent white. They, they became democratic. It's a prosperous place. It's a suburb of Atlanta. So you got all those things. That's the, that's the kind of picture. And what you have to do, and we'll talk about this in a second, imagine those places in your head and what differences they are. And, and that's really what we're starting to see. You know, during the campaign, I remember the speech that uh, President uh, Trump you know, made about, you know, I need a suburban woman to like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was talking about Jane, uh, June Cleaver. Basically, he was talking about a kind of a suburb that is not at all typical anymore. Suburbs used to be uh, predominantly white, middle class, kind of upper middle class, certainly homogeneous. Uh, now suburbs are much more diverse, uh, both economically and, and otherwise. And so the appeal that that had essentially was an appeal that said white people watch out because black people are moving in and they're going to cause problems, which frankly used to be a driving force in suburbs. That's not the case anymore because suburbs are now more, a lot of suburbs are more racially diverse, like the one I described a minute ago. So he tried to reinstate a vision that no longer exists. No, I know in some of the, uh, the research that you were looking at, they talked about, you know, the proximity to a Whole Foods store or a yeah. Lululemon store. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, see, what's going on here, and that's one of the significant uh, things to understand about all of this. This is another example of the increase in polarization, because polarization, it's not simply polarization by party. It's polarization by the kind of place you live in, urban versus rural, for example, diverse inner suburbs versus small towns and so on. But there are clear lifestyle differences let's call it social polarization that reinforces uh, political polarization. And the, the Whole Foods stuff, and by the way, you live closer to Whole Foods than I do. So, uh, <laughs> But the Whole Foods polarization is that, that uh, if you live close to Whole Foods, you're more likely to vote Democratic uh, than if you don't live close to Whole Foods. So those, that may seem trivial, but what, it's not trivial at all, because what you have here is another example of the reinforcements of the kind of divides that we're talking about here and the stubbornness of polarization and it gets reflected in the kinds of interest in certain kinds of policies that democrats and republicans have so you've got this economic rift i guess then yeah that 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 we've uh, we've clearly seen based on the vote um but you know how does that bode for working our differences out. Uh, it doesn't bode well because the parties, the, the more polarized the sources of support are, the more parties have different interests. Uh, if you're from an urban area that's relatively prosperous, take an exaggerated example like San Francisco, for example. It doesn't have to be any city. You're going to be more interested in affordable housing, infrastructure, transportation. That's not the interest in rural areas. Rural areas are really suffering in very different sorts of ways. They're not really... It's not so much getting to work, it's having work at all. Uh, and you combine that with the kind of resentment that's there in these rural areas that, that, uh, that political life has really passed them by, and you see how hard it's going to be. So that's a real challenge for President Biden, not to mention the fact that the Democrats are really very much divided on some of these same issues, how much you emphasize uh, urban, kind of urban, people of color issues, and how much you don't. So if, in, in case you didn't think there was enough on Biden's plate going ahead, um, this is an indication that there will be a lot more. Now, I know th there was a lot of uh, talk uh, early on that, that uh, a lot of the immigrant vote would go toward Biden, but that didn't really play out in Florida. Well, it didn't play. It played well, yes. It, it, it's. The, the thing about immigrant votes is that there is a big surprise. There are subsets of immigrants that think differently. Uh, uh, Trump did very well in certain sections of Florida that tend to be more Cuban-American, who tend to be more sympathetic toward Trump did well there. They tend to be more sympathetic toward Republicans anyway. It's an interesting example of what, uh, 
uh, Latinx vote really turned out here, because in some areas on the South Texas border, for example, uh, there was an increase in, in votes of, of Hispanics, because a lot of Hispanics are, it's not, a lot of them believe in some of the same economic policies. But if you want to understand this, you look at another part of Texas, which is Tennant County, uh, where Fort Worth is, used to be the most reliable Republican uh, county in in the state of Texas, and that same something, it's not. It voted Democratic this time, and if you ride, if you ride uh, 200 miles one way or maybe 300 miles the other way, you don't come across another Democratic county for for that distance of time because it's all rural. So Texas is an interesting example of you seeing all these different kinds of dynamics. But the overall thing is that there's a lot of little differences that we don't understand very much yet. But these broader ones about the difference between urban and rural are pretty clear. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see uh, uh, how the parties make use of this information uh, during the next election. <laughs> yeah, interesting may not be the word that you want to use after a couple of years of this, but we'll see. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Neil. Sure. Neil Milner is a retired professor of political science at UH Manoa, and he joins us regularly with his thoughts on the long view. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. UH Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to an endangered forest honeycreeper, some likened to Hawaii's woodpecker. Akia polaau are large, bright yellow honeycreepers that act like woodpeckers. They use their strong lower bill to peck holes in the branches of trees. Then they use their long, curved upper bill to pry out the tasty insect larvae. There are less than 2,000 of these birds left, mainly because of habitat loss and mosquito-transmitted avian malaria. And nowadays, their song can only be heard in high-elevation koa forests on the Big Island, where it's too cold for mosquitoes. In addition to controlling mosquitoes, planting koa forests would be a great way to increase populations of this very rare and important species. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to help protect rare birds and plants at friendsofhakalauforest.org. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about the American war film centered around members of the Navajo Signal Corps. They baffled enemy eavesdroppers and provided U.S. forces with an unbreakable code by sending messages in their native language. Hawaii was a backdrop in the film as producers made full use of lush locations to depict the Battle of Saipan and other island-based battle scenes. Ka'ala Valley was the setting for one of them, and it included swooping helicopters and plenty of artillery fire. 
The film was a box office disappointment, and critics pointed out that the Navajo characters were only given supporting roles and were not the primary focus of the film. Director John Woo had this to say, The main themes of Wind Talkers are friendship and understanding. It's a story about a man and his own demons trying to redeem himself from war. I made the movie that way, but some people in the studio didn't appreciate it, and in the end, I guess neither did the audience. And we got a number of calls on our question, but uh, Ed Fraser of Pahoa, you got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, uh, write to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Farmer Don Heacock planted rice to feed the native birds some five years ago. He says that caught the eye of National Park Service officials with the Hanalei Heritage Wildlife Refuge. Heacock still has rice growing on his farm to keep the birds from his taro, but he also scaled a hurdle last year bringing in water buffalo, which was considered the workhorse during the reign of rice. We visited Heacock to check on his herd of eight water buffalo just before the shutdown this year, and we checked in on his journey towards an integrated farm. Back to the Future, you have to realize that when Captain Cook arrived here, do you remember what year that was? No. <laughs> 1778. When he arrived here on Kauai, and this was a paper published by Sam Gaughan, Patrick Kirsch, and a few others two years ago, he, they documented that on Kauai, there were 38,000 acres of taro, like my, my fields that you'll see in a minute. Um, they were foods they had food security. There were, in the whole state, there were estimated a million people and they didn't import anything. Why is it we're importing 90% of our food right now? Right. Why? So what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture? We need to go back to the future. We need to restore the integrity of our watersheds and, and, and the core should be the farming community in every one of those watersheds. There may be urban areas, of course, uh, but right now, we're being heavily impacted by the urbanization above us. Uh, just this last flood, I, I picked up two five-gallon buckets full of golf balls. They're in my taro fields. Thank you, Puakea. That's the name of the golf course. And we have to realize that right now, the state of Hawaii, neither the state nor the counties have a comprehensive stormwater quality protection program like every other state west of the Mississippi has. So we're using our streams to dump all the stormwater runoff. We might have little detention basins that, that capture the, the two-year average storm, but it doesn't ca capture the 50-year average. And, and they're doing this in Washington State, UC Davis. It was called Village Homes in Davis, California. They designed a whole subdivision that had zero runoff. Where does the runoff come from, Catherine? comes from impervious surfaces, rooftops, driveways, roadways. They designed a whole community that had zero runoff. So this idea of bringing back the water buffalo, I mean, they were here doing the rice paddies, uh, but you brought them in for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, first of all, the, the swamp water buffalo that were brought here back in the 1890s, brought from China, Clifford Wong's grandfather was one of them in, in Punalu'u. He still has two swamp water buffalo bulls. They have 48 chromosomes. These are river water buffalo, not swamp. They're from India. They have 50 chromosomes. And the difference is that in India, because they're Hindu, they don't eat meat. So they selected for milk production and draft power for 5,000 years. These animals will get as big as the swamp water buffalo, if not bigger. But they produce a lot of milk, not as much as a cow but they produce more butter fat than a cow, like a, a Jersey or Guernsey. So what they will ultimately be, and what I submitted to the Western SARE program, was a proposal to look at water buffalo in an integrated farming system that would be multifunctional. They'll produce fertilizer, they'll plow and puddle the taro fields, they will log for us, they'll pull logs out of the forest, 
they'll pull a wagon of agro-tourists, people that visit the farm, so we can basically show them the part of the Ahupua'a, the traditional Ahupua'a that we've restored. We have Chief Puali's house site here. We have, you know, th these are the places you're not looking at my, the valley right now. Nobody lived here. They lived down where the water was and we're blessed with Puali stream and three springs. One spring puts out a half a million gallons a day. So we have abundant water. And these are the places where everyone lives. So the, the demographics have changed. So these buffalo will be, they won't be farm animals. They'll be more like pets. Yeah, the milk, they'll produce 5,000 liters of milk a year, worth a minimum of $3 a liter. So do the math on that. That's per lactation. They live twice as long as a cow. They'll have twice as many calves as a cow and they'll eat things that cows won't look at. So they're highly adapted to eating invasive stuff that's everywhere, including this guinea grass that you can see. They've, we brought them into this overgrazed paddock this morning just so you could see them and wouldn't have to walk. Well, now, ways. well, thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so the idea is that you'll use uh, the water buffalo to work in the taro fields or, or get to inaccessible areas? Well, you know, to, to pull a heavy log out of the forest, how do you do that? Well, typically what people would do is they go in with chainsaws and then they'd bring in their big bulldozer or heavy equipment and you cause a lot of soil erosion. With a buffalo, all I need is an area four feet wide. You know, you look at well-trained draft animal, like some of the draft horses that they are trained for logging. They're looking over their shoulder, backing up in the forest to the log that they're gonna pull. They hook onto the log, they walk them out. The National Park Service in many places on the mainland will only allow logging by draft animals because they, they only leave footprints. Minimal damage, okay? And so we have to mix farming with conservation. I mean, I've been labeled an environmentalist. Any farmer that's not an environmentalist is not a farmer because the environment produces all the resources we need to grow food and fiber. We need both food and fiber. We know we import about five and a half billion dollars worth of food a year into the state of Hawaii. Imagine if we were growing that here. What can't we grow here, Catherine? There's nothing we can't grow here. Maybe with the exception of cranberries, although there is a native cranberry that grows in the Alakai Swamp. So what else do you have uh, growing here uh, on your property besides taro? Our, our economic drivers will be and are our water buffalo when we start milking. And we will sell, shared, we will sell herd shares because as many people know, it's, we're one of the few states that will not allow the sale of raw milk. 43 states allow it, not Hawaii. So I won't sell raw milk. I'll sell herd shares. People will, you could buy part of that buffalo. Now it's your milk. You pay me only to take care of her and to milk her for you. You come pick the gallon of milk up every Saturday morning, okay? And if you had 12 kids, you'd probably buy four gallons of milk a week and you'd buy four herd share. So I'm getting on a tangent a little bit, but the other crops that we will be our economic drivers are our blue tilapia. We have a integrated aquaculture, agriculture, tilapia, taro system down here that's basically modeled after the ancient Hawaiian loco iakalo, which was a taro, you know, fish pond with taro in it. We've just separated the fish ponds from the taro, but all the effluent runs into uh, all, the, all the fish effluent, which is nutrient rich, flows by gravity right into the taro fields. I don't really plow my fields anymore, but I need to fertilize them and they'll produce the fertilizer. When we start milking, when the calves are a little older and we start milking in the milking barn, all those manures will go straight into the taro field. You know, people freak out, some, especially the Department of Health, when you talk about using manures in farming. But with taro, you have to cook it in a pressure cooker for, you know, it's okay, Ipo, go on, go on. Go on, go on, go. You want to be oh. part of this interview? Yeah, she's, she's, they're very inquisitive. Yeah. So, Taro, you've got to cook it 
for an hour and a half in a pressure cooker at 350 degrees before you can eat it. So what organism is gonna survive in that? None. Taro needs to be exempt from all this food safety nonsense. It's really nonsense. If you ate taro raw, you're gonna be in the emergency room anyway, okay? So we, we, we aside from the taro and the fish, we have 19 varieties of avocados, probably 200 or so. I have, actually haven't counted them. We're still grafting more. We have mangoes, we have Thai long gone, probably 200 coconut trees. All of these things are basically what we're growing to a large degree in the original Ahupua system. But Hawaiians didn't have avocados. They didn't have mangoes. If they had them, they would have planted them. I have an old heirloom rice that Dr. Fukuoka grew. I got it from originally from Chris Kobayashi in Hanalei. This is the rice that Dr. Fukuoka wrote the book, The One Straw Revolution, about. And I grow it just for the water birds, the alai ula. See, I make three kinds of profits. I make economic profits, but I make environmental profits. We have three species of water birds that are abundant here. They, 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 they probably were on generation 86 by now because they, I can walk up to a mother Kaloa duck with her nine ducklings as close as I am to you and she won't fly away. Most people can't even get 50 feet to a, a Kaloa duck and it'll fly away. So the animals become habituated to me because they know I'm not gonna hurt them and there's plenty of food here. So that's in the environmental profits I make, but I make social and cultural profits too when I bring school kids and even, even mature Hawaiian men that have never planted taro before. And they, they get in the taro field for the first time and f literally feel their roots. Uh, it's a real grounding. That was Don Heacock, a koi farmer who is intent on building his herd of water buffalo. He has looked to the reign of rice going back to the future. Since we visited his farm, Heacock has received a federal grant and that's allowed him to buy his dairy equipment and he is looking forward to a bright future integrating his farm. run out of time, but up tomorrow we check in on the history of rice here on Oahu. Waipahu, Mo'ili'ili, Kailua, and Punalu. You got a rice story to share? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Post your comments at Facebook on The Conversation HPR or you can tweet us at HI Conversation. And email works too. Talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find all of our shows archived on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.